The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Tonight we're turning to verses 22 through 30 of Mark, chapter 3. Mark's Gospel is known for its quick, action-packed narrative of Jesus' life and ministry, so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that week after week we're, we're really coming to a new significant episode in the ministry of Jesus. And it probably shouldn't surprise me that a few weeks ago when I preached, I uh, preached on the passage of the paralytic, I think I said it was one of my favorite stories in the gospel, uh, and now we're right back again to another significant story and conversation that Jesus is having that's again shining light on the truth of the gospel and revealing uh, the determined blindness of the scribes. It seems like in Mark's gospel, every passage is significant, and we're just turning from one significant moment in the story of Jesus' life uh, to, to the next. But at the core of our passage tonight is really another statement from Jesus on the fact and the significance of the kingdom of God. What does it mean that the kingdom of God has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ? And that's what this passage is really addressing at its heart. Would you join me as we read Mark three, twenty-two to 30? Then the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. And truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word. This word that you have spoken in your unchangeable, eternal truthfulness. It is your word, and so we can rely on it. It is your word, so we know that you are speaking in it to your people. And we pray that you would address our heart, apply this word to our lives tonight for your sake. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, throughout the first couple of chapters of Mark, as we've walked somewhat slowly through these first three chapters, we've seen Jesus' power to heal sickness and cast out demons coming up again and again. 
chapter 1, we saw uh, people flooding the doorstep of Jesus' house and him healing and casting out demons all through uh, the night. We saw in, in chapter 2 crowds packing in to see what miracles he would do, and, and uh, we, we saw him healing on the, on the Sabbath, healing the paralytic, casting out uh, demons. We've, we saw at the beginning of chapter 3 um, uh, when an unclean spirit fell down before him, crying out, you are the Son of God. And So again and again, we've seen this focus on the healing power of Jesus to heal sickness and to heal uh, demon possession. And it seems to be that this power that Jesus is displaying in healing and casting out demons is, is really uh, a key part of the, the gathering of the crowds, the attraction that the crowds feel uh, to Jesus. Wherever he goes, he's healing, he's demonstrating power, and this is, this is leading to huge numbers of people coming to him. Certainly his teaching was a part of this, they're amazed at that, but the power he's demonstrating is a key part of the crowds gathering around him. Now, um, we're in an election season, so we're very familiar with the idea that if one candidate in an election uh, does something to gain some momentum, um, the other candidate is going to be quick to step in and do whatever they can to stop that momentum. Now, they're either going to try to undermine the statement or, or the position of that candidate that seems to be gaining their popularity. They're going to try to do something to, to kind of counteract that with getting their own momentum going. Um, and so uh, with, with that sort of uh, uh, background, it shouldn't surprise us that as the crowds start to gather around Jesus, the scribes feel the need to kind of come in and undercut Jesus' growing momentum. And so in verse 22, when we see the scribes showing up from Jerusalem, uh, it should be uh, exactly what we would, we would expect. Now for the scribes, though, they have a difficult task. If we're talking about counteracting a good teacher or someone who's, who perhaps tells a compelling story, you could maybe step in and try to uh, tell a different story or, or give a, give a uh, counteract with a different teaching or often, if we're just talking about a good teacher or preacher, you just have to wait it out because the initial attraction over a good teacher begins to fade as, as the novelty wears off. But here we have Jesus not just teaching well, but actually casting out demons and healing with, with, with supernatural power. That's going to be much more difficult for the scribes to counteract. How do they respond to a man who comes with authority and power to teach and cast out demons. Now, there were certainly some different explanations at the scribes' disposal. If they wanted to discount Jesus' ability to cast out demons, they could have suggested a number of possibilities. We know that in first century Judaism, there was uh, certainly a number of itinerant exorcists who would go around uh, and offer their services uh, to cast out demons. Um, you, might, uh, you might think, if you are thinking of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, where we encounter seven brothers who are called uh, uh, itinerant Jewish exorcists. And these seven brothers who just travel around the Jewish world offering to cast out demons. And so the scribes could have said, look, okay, you know, Jesus, he's cast out a few demons here, uh, but, you know, uh, he, he really should just uh, fall into the category of an itinerant exorcist, perhaps. They could have also appealed to sorcery. Um, we know that uh, sorcery was alive and well in the first century. Uh, in fact, uh, the Jewish uh, Talmud discusses sorcery and actually suggests that perhaps Jesus was involved in sorcery somehow, and that's one of the Talmud's explanations for what Jesus was doing when he successfully cast out demons. 
However, though these explanations were available, the scribes don't go to them. They don't say, well, he was just an exor- uh, you know, itinerant exorcist, he's just a sorcerer. There's something different about what Jesus is able to do when he casts out demons that distinguishes him or sets him apart from your typical uh, exorcist. And uh, we might get some clues. For instance, in Acts 19, these, these seven uh, Jewish brothers uh, make a name for themselves because they decide they're going to try to use Jesus' name to cast out some demons. And when they do, the demons respond and say, well, I know who Jesus is, but I don't know who you are. And the demon-possessed man beats up all seven brothers and they have to flee the scene. So apparently the Jewish exorcists were not universal in their success. They may have had some occasional success, but they also had some notable failures. And clearly, the scribes can tell Jesus is not having any notable failures here. He seems to have a 100% success rate. Maybe that's what sets Jesus apart from the other uh, current-day demon workers. Maybe it's the fact that um, Jesus doesn't use a ceremony or spell like a sorcerer or an exorcist was. He just speaks a word and says, leave, and the demons leave. Maybe that sets Jesus apart from the others around them. Or, or maybe it's the fact that the demons actually respond to Jesus and seem to know who Jesus is and are terrified of him and say, you are the son of God. Maybe it's the demon's own uh, pronouncements which set Jesus apart. Uh, but whatever it was, it was clear to the scribes that something more than their typical uh, Jewish exorcist or typical sorcerer was at work here. Now, if the typical explanations are inadequate because of the power of Jesus' ministry. I think the scribes were recognizing what the crowds were recognizing, and that is that Jesus seems to have a supernatural power behind what he is doing. He's not just doing something that we've seen others do. There is a supernatural power behind him. But if there's a supernatural power behind what Jesus is doing, then there's really only two options. Either God's power is at work through Jesus, or Satan's power as it work through Jesus. And for the scribes, that, uh, that eliminates one of the options automatically because the scribes have already discounted God as an option. The scribes have already heard Jesus teach, and for the scribes, Jesus has already crossed their lines of orthodoxy enough times that they've already pre-decided that God is not the one at work in Jesus. And so that only leaves one option for the scribe. Well, it can't be God at work, But he's clearly doing something supernatural. So it must be the work of Satan himself that's at work uh, in Jesus' ministry. And that's the accusation that the scribes make here uh, in verse 22. They say that uh, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul, this prince of evil spirits. And so uh, the scribes are basically saying... Jesus is beating up on little demons with the power of the big head honcho demon. And that's the uh, accusation that they make. But of course, Jesus immediately recognizes what the scribes fail to take into account. The scribes have missed the central conflict between God and the powers of Satan in this world. See, demons and evil powers are not just random powers that were operative in the first century. Life was not some video game where you have little evil powers and big evil powers, and sometimes the big evil powers beat up on the little evil powers. That's not what's happening here. All demons are engaged on on the side of Satan in a tremendous warfare. 
All demons, Beelzebul, the prince of demons, Satan himself, have drawn a line in the sand and are working together to fight against all that is good, all the power of God as he works in his creation. They're working to destroy, to enslave, to defeat God in his power. So all the demons are fighting with Satan himself against the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, it quickly exposes the error of the scribes' thinking, and he rhetorically asks the questions that caused the scribes' proposals to crumble immediately. So you see the questions that Jesus asks. And, and you can imagine Jesus, I can imagine him almost with maybe a smile on his face as he says to the scribes, Really? Satan? I'm possessed by Beelzebul. So what you're saying is that Satan is casting out Satan. What you're saying, what you're saying is, that, is that Satan has risen up against himself. What you're saying is that Satan has now decided to destroy his own team. And Jesus immediately asks the follow-up question, and he points out, he says, look, if Satan has risen up against himself, his power will be destroyed, for no kingdom divided against itself can survive. It would be impossible to imagine in a kingdom warfare that Satan would rise up against his own side and begin to undercut the work of his own teammates in their battle against God. See, Jesus, Jesus' point drives home exactly what the scribes were out to avoid. Because Jesus' point is, look, I can't be operating with Satan's power. Satan has not risen up against Satan or else he's defeating himself. That is an impossibility. But if Jesus can't be operating with Satan's power, there's only one option left. That Jesus' power is the work of God himself. God himself is at work through Jesus, casting out demons. And if God himself is casting out demons, then God has shown up in the world and is actively crushing Satan's foothold among men. That's the point of Jesus' rhetorical questions when he points out it can't be Satan at work. It must be God. And if God is at work, the kingdom has come. That's exactly, in fact, what Jesus says in Luke's account when, when Luke uh, uh, gives his account of this very conversation, Jesus makes this point directly when he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's also what Jesus is saying here in verse 27. If you look down at verse 27, verse 27 can seem like a bit of a cryptic statement. Jesus, after asking his rhetorical questions and stating the impossibility that Satan's casting at himself, he comes in verse 27 and says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. But you see what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if Satan isn't at work here, Satan is being bound and his house is being plundered. He's saying... If God is at work, what is the first thing you would expect God to do? It is to bind the strong man. It is to bind Satan so that he may then plunder his house. What would it mean if Satan is being bound and his house is plundered? The only thing it can mean is that God, who is the only one who has power to work in this way, God is here binding Satan and rescuing enslaved men and women from his control. 
And if God is here binding Satan and rescuing enslaved men and women from his control, then the kingdom of God has come, and it is coming through the very one who's casting out the demons, Jesus Christ. In these first few verses, as as Jesus is responding to the scribes, his point is Satan cannot be doing this, or Satan would be overthrowing himself. It is God who is at work, binding the strong man that he might plunder his house. And if God is at work, then the kingdom of God is upon you. You know, for, if, you, if you cast your mind back to the first century Jew who would have been here in Judea and the area surrounding Jerusalem, think what this pronouncement would mean. See, the first century Jew was under Roman rule. Many first century Jews, based on our accounts in the Gospels, were experiencing demon possession or knew those who were experiencing demon possession. They were subject to sin. They were subject to the suffering of life. They'd been waiting for century after century for God to show up and fulfill his promises. They were waiting for Satan to be bound. They were waiting for the plundering of Satan's house. They were waiting for the arrival of the Messiah and the kingdom of God. And if that kingdom has arrived... If Jesus' work in casting out demons means that kingdom is here and that Messiah has come and that Satan in the, in the work of sin and curse and suffering is being bound, this is the greatest news that a Jewish person could imagine. But I don't want us to miss how glorious this news is for us either. I was thinking even this week as I, as I prepared for, for this sermon how many times we just feel the weight and the burden of sin and the curse of sin in our lives. How many times we feel just the weakness, the weakness uh, and, uh, of, of walking through the, the difficulties of life. How many times we, I look in myself in and, and, and despair over the remaining sin that I see in myself and long for the power of God to break evil's work. How many times I look around me at our, at our world, at our culture, and see the suffering and the sin and the evil that it's at work in it. How many times uh, I, I think of the grieving of loss, the, the, the suffering of those who are sick, those who are exhausted by just the daily grind of difficulties that comes from living in a fallen world that's under a curse. And we think, what is the greatest news that we could receive? And it would be that, that Satan who is the prince of the power of this air, and, and the dominion of sin and the curse would be broken, that, that he would be bound, and that, that we might be those who would be plundered out of that kingdom. This is the greatest news we could, we could imagine. To hear that, that Satan is being bound, his kingdom is being robbed, his power is collapsing, gives hope in every minute and detail of our day as we are reminded of our own weakness, of our own sin, of our own suffering, of our own despair, of our own sickness, all of those marks of sin, the reminder that Jesus has come to bind the strong man and rescue us out of that is the greatest, most hopeful news that we have. And so here is Jesus announcing the arrival of the kingdom, giving hope to the first century Jew and giving hope to each one of us who reads his words here in Mark. You know, from his first teaching in chapter 1 to his declaration that the paralytic sins were forgiven in chapter 2, 
to his response to the scribes here in chapter 3, Jesus is declaring over and over again the good news that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God has arrived. And the only explanation for rejecting the display of God's kingdom is a willful rejection and denial of him and his power. The kingdom of God is here. But if you move on to verse 28, Jesus has announced that the kingdom of God is here. Demons are being cast out, not by Satan, but by the finger of God as evidence that his kingdom has arrived. But Jesus then begins to unpack in verse 28 some of what it means if the kingdom of God is here. If the kingdom of God has arrived, what does that mean? What does that mean for those who accept the kingdom? And what does it mean for those who reject the kingdom? Jesus wants to unpack what the consequences are. See, the kingdom of God, if the kingdom of God has arrived, there's no room for neutrality. You can't just sit back and say, oh, hmm, the kingdom of God is here. Let's see what happens. If the kingdom of God has arrived, there's two options. We either accept and rejoice over the coming of the kingdom of God, or we reject the kingdom of God. We are going to be in one of the two places. And so Jesus wants to highlight for us the nature of our acceptance or our rejection. What will each entail? Will we repent and believe in the Son of God and His kingdom, and what will that mean? Or will we reject the kingdom as a fraud, and what will that mean? Well, in verse 28, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And I don't want us to miss this comprehensive statement of the forgiveness of sins that is available with the coming of the kingdom. For those who accept the coming of the kingdom, for those who accept the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, all sins will be forgiven. And Jesus emphasizes this in a way that's so dramatic, but we often miss it because we're in a different cultural context. He says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, if you just cast your mind through the Gospels for a second and think about the times when the Jews accused Jesus of blasphemy, I think you'll begin to get a a sense of how serious a sin blasphemy was in the first century Judaism. Very little could be worse than blaspheming the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. For a first century Jew, there were few things they could imagine that would be more of a direct assault or rebellion against God than blaspheming his name. And so for Jesus to say, look, in the kingdom of God, there's forgiveness for all sins, even all blasphemies against the name of God himself. That is a dramatic statement for the extent of forgiveness that's available through, the, through Jesus Christ. And I think um, perhaps we've, we've been so used to hearing the name of God thrown around flippantly, or, or we're so used to um, uh, hearing, hearing um, God uh, cursed or... or, or um, or those opposing God, that this statement doesn't strike us with the force that would have hit a first century Jew. So perhaps we need to think of a, uh, of a different sin in order to comprehend the extent of what Jesus is, is, is saying here. Maybe we need to imagine the worst criminal we can think of in order to understand what Jesus is saying when he says that all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. I was reading a few weeks ago uh, the account of Jeffrey Dahmer, who was a criminal uh, captured, uh, arrested in 1992 and sentenced to 15 terms of life imprisonment for 
16 counts of murder, rape, and cannibalism. A series of crimes which shocked the nation. But while he was in prison, Jeffrey Dahmer gave his life to Christ and was mentored by a local pastor until he was killed by a fellow inmate. And the, fellow pa- the, the pastor that, uh, that, that discipled him has written about the change in the life of Jeffrey Dahmer and what it tells us about the grace of God to have a horrific criminal give his life to Christ. And he's written recently about the number of people, this pastor uh, has written about the number of people who have come up to him and asked him in disbelief, well, you don't think Jeffrey really gave his life to Christ, do you? And you see the, the doubt behind his statement. Surely someone who had committed that bad of a sin couldn't actually have accepted the forgiveness of God, could he? One professor responded to this pastor, if Jeffrey Dahmer is in heaven, I don't want to go there. We have an idea that there are some sins that are too horrific to be forgiven. Our revulsion at the idea, though, of a man who committed abhorrent crimes, repenting and believing in the kingdom of God, betrays that we don't really understand Jesus' statement about what the kingdom of God does. The kingdom of God comes to plunder people from the house and dominion of Satan. That means all of us who will be in the kingdom of God were formerly in the house of Satan. Now those of us who were members of the kingdom of Satan may have expressed that in different ways. Perhaps some expressed their allegiance to Satan's kingdom by their pride, their arrogance, and their self-centeredness. Perhaps others expressed it by abhorrent and violent crimes. But both the violent criminal and the arrogant, stuck-up, self-focused person can be plundered from Satan's house and can be transferred from Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of God by the power of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. Both can believe Acts 13.39 which says, through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. Both can believe Isaiah, though our sins were as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And perhaps there's none here who can claim the deeds of a Jeffrey Dahmer, but we know our sin, don't we? Don't all of us know the deep stain of sin in our heart? Don't all of us feel on a weekly basis the the extent of the sin that still bears its mark on us? We know the ways we've waved the flag of the kingdom of Satan in the past. We know the burden of guilt. And so you, I, and Jeffrey Dahmer are all plundered goods from Satan's kingdom, rescued by the arrival of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. I love the words of J.C. Ryle when he comments on this passage. He says, If there's anything in this passage that should thrill our hearts, it is this. He said, These sins, that all sins shall be forgiven to the sons of men, fall lightly on the ears of many persons. But to the man who is alive to his own sinfulness and deeply sensible of his need of mercy, these words are sweet and precious. Let us cleave firmly to this doctrine. We may sometimes feel faint and unworthy and cast down. But if we have really come to Jesus by faith, our sins are clean, forgiven. They are cast behind God's back, 
blotted out of the book of his remembrance, sunk into the depths of the sea, so let us believe in him and not be afraid. This is the high, deep truth of the gospel that sheds the light of hope to the deepest dungeons of our hearts. Where hope seems impossible, there is hope in the arrival of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ, who is here to cast out demons and plunder the kingdom of Satan. This forgiveness can only be accomplished by the power of God. But Jesus Christ arrived with the power of God. And the good news of the gospel is that God and his kingdom have arrived, and so such a rescue is offered to all of us for all sin in Jesus Christ. However, if, if the extent of forgiveness is wider than we could have imagined in the kingdom of God, Jesus concludes by warning of one sin that will not be forgiven. Jesus adds in verse 29, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So here we have this verse, this classic verse on the unforgivable sin. And and this certainly seems like a puzzling statement, doesn't it? It has to raise so many questions. Why in the world would there be just one sin that God refuses to forgive? How does that make sense? And if God was going to choose just one sin not to forgive, why in the world would it be a word blaspheming the Holy Spirit instead of violent murder, rape, and cannibalism? It certainly seems like that one would be the worst one God wouldn't want to forgive. And, and if there is just one and, and this is it, well, what exactly is blaspheming the Holy Spirit then? What, what, what is it? And I'm not sure what that is. Have I committed it? You know, there, all the questions start to roll through our minds when we hear one sin that will never be forgiven. That's pretty final. We better know what that's saying. I think part of the reason that Jesus' statement is so puzzling to us is that the Holy Spirit in general is puzzling to us. You know, God the Father, we have a pretty good idea in our minds of how to think about God the Father. And, and, and Jesus the Son, I think we, we generally have a pretty good idea of, of how to think about who he is and, and his work. But, but the Holy Spirit is a little bit vague. Who is he and what does he do, do and, and what would it mean to blaspheme him? So I want to take just a, a brief minute to review the person and the work of the Holy Spirit so that we can understand this unforgivable sin. If God, if God the Father is the initiator, the one who plans, who chooses, who directs, who sovereignly governs and guides all things, if God the Son is the Word of God, the one who reveals God, and the one who carries out God's will, then God the Spirit is the power, the force of God's presence, the one who accomplishes and applies God's will. You know, we think of a spirit, when we think of a spirit, uh, we're, we're coming up on, on Halloween, and so we, we see these white ghosts planted in people's yards, and that's usually what we think of when we think of a spirit. And of course, it doesn't make it any better that we sometimes call the Holy Spirit the Holy Ghost. And so we're thinking of this sort of ephemeral, immaterial spirit, untangible sort of thing that floats around, and that's what we think of when we think of the Holy Spirit. But in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word ruach, that's translated spirit, doesn't mean something invisible, intangible, ghost-like. It means something, uh, something like energy or activity. When we talk about the spirit in, in the Old Testament, we're talking about energy, force, activity. 
As Sinclair Ferguson put it, he said, Yahweh's spirit is the blast of God, the irresistible power by which God accomplishes all his purposes. The spirit is God extending himself in active engagement with his creation in a very personal way. Or to put it another way, the Holy Spirit is the force or energy that accomplishes God's work, whether of creation, of destruction, or salvation. Well, if the Holy Spirit is the one who accomplishes and applies God's work, we shouldn't be surprised to find the Bible connecting the Holy Spirit to our salvation all over the place. You might think uh, of Psalm 51. Psalm 51, of course, is David's great prayer of confession. But in Psalm 51, David prays, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And Singular Ferguson goes on to point out that this verse connects the Holy Spirit with God's presence in our life, God's salvation in our life, and our joy and delight in God's salvation. All of those revolve around, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And so the Holy Spirit is connected to to our, our knowing God's presence, God's salvation, and our joy in him. As for the energy or activity of God, the the force that accomplishes the Father's will, we shouldn't be surprised when we arrive at the New Testament and find out that it's the Holy Spirit who accomplishes the steps of salvation. And so when when the New Testament talks about our hearts being regenerated or made new, or this idea of being renewed or made into new creations, the New Testament says it's the Holy Spirit that regenerates our hearts. When it talks about convicting the world of sin, being convicted of sin and turned to repentance, the New Testament says that's the Holy Spirit that convicts our hearts. When, when, when the New Testament talks about establishing our faith or creating new life in us, that's the Holy Spirit. And of course, at the very core of all of this, the Holy Spirit's chief work is uniting us to Jesus. And so in John 14, when Jesus is talking about sending the Spirit, sending the Helper, or, or in 1 Corinthians 15, the Holy Spirit is presented as the means by which we are united to Jesus. If the Holy Spirit is the means by which we're united to Jesus, that means the Spirit is the means by which we receive all the benefits of salvation. It's how we're connected to our Savior. It's how we find any access to the blood of Jesus that he shed for us. The Holy Spirit is the one that unites us to Christ, regenerates our hearts, convicts us of sin, brings about repentance, establishes faith, creates new life, works sanctification. All that's the work of the Holy Spirit, the active force or energy of God that applies his will and accomplishes it in our lives. Well, if that's the case, if apart from the Holy Spirit, nothing can happen, none of this can happen, What would it look like to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, to blaspheme is to dishonor, to mock, or to belittle in a way that rejects something or someone. Well, in this passage, Mark tells us, in fact, that the occasion for Jesus' remark was the people's comment that Jesus had an unclean spirit. What do you do in the first century if someone has an unclean or demonic spirit? You resist it. You try to cast it out. You stay away from it. You reject it. 
So when the people are saying, hey, Jesus and what he's doing, that's an unclean spirit at work there. They're saying, that is evil. We are distancing ourselves from that. We're rejecting that. We stay away from that. Well, what, are we, what are we saying there? If the Holy Spirit is to be avoided, fought against, rejected, then all of the work of salvation is impossible. One who rejects the work of the Holy Spirit rejects the energy, the force of God. They reject regeneration, the working of faith, the uniting to Christ, and all the benefits of redemption that come with that. Reject all that, fight against it, belittle it, and salvation is impossible. Not because that one sin is more unforgivable than the others, but that what you're doing in that sin makes salvation impossible. You cannot You cannot be drawn near to Christ if the Holy Spirit is rejected and kept at arm's length, belittled and avoided. Kent Hughes, professor at Westminster Seminary, defines it this way. He said, we could summarize all this by saying that the unforgivable sin is very simply the ongoing continual rejection of the witness and work of the Holy Spirit. That is what we are talking about here. So there's, there's not some magical word that we might accidentally slip and say that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to belittle, to dishonor, to reject as, an, as if it were an unclean spirit. And that's what the scribes are doing here, right? Stay away from us. We want nothing to do with that. That is evil. They're blaspheming the Holy Spirit and keeping the Spirit at a distance. And of course, there absolutely are many, many people who have committed and are committing this unforgivable sin. Hard hearts that resist the work of God are a reality. Hell is filled with many who persist in their sin in the face of the call of God to repentance. This is a reality. And so the warning of this passage in verse 29 is that eternal sin is present in the lives of people around us. It is present, it is real in the lives of those who consistently reject God, who He is in His work by the Holy Spirit. But that's the result of kingdom warfare. We have those who will accept the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness for all their sins. And we have those who will say, this Spirit of God, I want nothing to do with Him. Stay away. And eternal condemnation awaits them. I think it's worth noting briefly for those who worry about, well, what, what if I accidentally commit the unforgivable sin? I think this description makes it clear that if you have a desire to be with God, if you have a desire to be convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, if you have a desire to be united to Christ and for your sins to be forgiven, you are by definition not committing the unforgivable sin that very heart and desire to be united to Christ and be convicted by His Spirit demonstrates that you have not and are not committing the unforgivable sin. If you run to Christ and long for His Spirit, you are running to the kingdom. And there is no talisman or, or, or magic word that can make that impossible in itself. Well, once again, Jesus is filling out our picture of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is here. And it is evident because the power of God is at work defeating Satan, casting out Satan's demons, plundering people from Satan's domain. And any one of us who will repent and believe and trust 
in Jesus as the one who brings the kingdom, who will yield to his spirit's work, may be snatched from Satan's grasp and brought in to the kingdom. This passage gives us great hope. It gives us great hope that God's power is at work, that his forgiveness, great forgiveness, is available. The kingdom of God is the great hope of all men and women who have suffered under the weight and the guilt of sin and the curse. So here we have Jesus' call. Jesus calls to run through the gates of this kingdom through Jesus Christ. And for those who have run through those gates, to continue to rejoice and give great thanks and praise to our Savior, through whom all sins will be forgiven. To the God who has come and transferred us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his Son, we can only say hallelujah and thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful to you for your word. So grateful for sending Jesus Christ to announce and to bring the kingdom, to reveal you and your work, and to die to make salvation possible. We're so thankful for sending your Spirit, the one who convicts us of sin, regenerates our hearts, works faith in us, and so unites us to Jesus so that we have forgiveness justified before our Father, restored to relationship with Him, adopted as His sons, and made more and more like Him. All this through the power of Your Spirit. May we yield to Him and run quickly with great rejoicing to Him. We pray. We pray for those around us who seem to be rejecting the kingdom of God. Would You be at work extending Your kingdom in their hearts and so diminishing Satan's kingdom and growing Your kingdom for the glory of Your name? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.